Hey everyone, thank you for joining. Today I'm speaking with Batya Ungar Sargon. Batya is the Deputy Opinions Editor at Newsweek. She's a journalist and recently she had a piece out in Persuasion called The Warped Version of Anti-Racism. Hi Batya, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, okay, so oh, I've been seeing your, some of your stuff on Twitter and I read that piece and then, okay, so you know, I might be a little unfair because like I have been a bit critical of uh, journalism <laughs> for the last little while so you know you know if i'm beating up too much on you let me know i i've got to ask you this like because I, I know you put out some of this stuff and working in journalism when you think see things going on at, like the new york times like you know barry weiss leaving or the what was the the latest one the the professor the, the guy who took the students down to peru Ronald and, McNeil, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like when you see things like that and you're working in journalism like like what do you think about that <sighs> <laughs> so uh i have a book about this coming out in october uh yeah. it's called bad news how woke media is undermining democracy so i've thought a lot about this question mm. um i think um this is my primary thought about it you don't actually have to cancel or fire every single person or even half the people or even that many people for it to have the intended effect and um, what I mean by that is um, when things happen at the New York Times, which is sort of the paper of record, the effect that has, the chilling effect that has on all the journalists who are not at the Times, but who maybe want to one day work at the Times, or all of the people who are not journalists, but who want to become journalists is immense because they see this thing happening, this explosion happening this huge pushback people get for not hewing to the orthodoxy. And they think to themselves, well, I don't wanna be that person. I don't wanna be publicly humiliated. I don't wanna be out there having my name dragged through the mud, called a racist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so the downstreaming of that on the industry is that it enforces this kind of the total orthodoxy but it's not just, it's not that it's being enforced by people out there, right? It is by some, right? So, um, so for example, when the New York Times fires somebody, right? That person is fired and that's been enforced by their bosses. But what ends up happening a lot, I think, is people self-impose, they self-restrict, they uh, self-censor because they don't want to be the object of so much cruelty. And of course, it's not, these are not huge civil rights issues, right? Journalists are not being imprisoned in America. But the people whose job it is to think for themselves, to approach every new story with an open mind, a willingness to learn, a willingness to be wrong, are the very people who are self-imposing a kind of uniformity of views. And the impact of that is disastrous. It's terrible. Um, it's terrible in terms of what ideas we are allowed to have. It's terrible because ideas don't get truly tested anymore because we're terrified to find out that we're wrong. And so we don't allow people we disagree with to have their voices heard because God forbid they convince us, right? So you don't allow yourself to truly think openly. You don't allow um, views to be platformed that you disagree with. And the worst point thing that happened from my point of view has been the complete deplatforming of the working class because working class people tend to be more conservative. And we can go into that later about why that is. But the working class has become to the elites, to the liberal elites, 
one of the biggest threats out there. And so we have literally silenced those whose voices need to be elevated the most, not just because they have the least, but also because we're a democracy and there are many more poor and working class people than there are elites. So we should be sharing power with them. And instead we've done the opposite. We've used, um, I believe we've used wokeness, we've used a moral panic around race to um, further uh, conscript and, and consolidate power in the hands of elites and deplatform the working class as a result. When you mentioned like the working class and stuff, but the elites, like some of the stuff I'm looking at and it's, I take a little bit of a slightly different view on this. Um, you know, like you mentioned, journalists aren't being imprisoned in the United States. They, they're not being, you know, it's not Khashoggi going to the Saudi embassy and, you know, having his head cut off. It's, it's not that it's, but the, the chilling effect and all that too. But I mean, like, I look at some of the stuff coming out of the journalism here and like there was a piece in New York times, I think it was last year about how Hong Kong belongs to China and that you know, democracy would be another form of colonialism and stuff like that in the Middle East also plays out. Like I'd spoken to someone recently and she was talking about how post-colonialism mixed with, you know, the religion, you know, the religiousness in the Middle East saying, okay, secularism was a Western idea. And I mean, then they can also point to things like, you know, uh, Gaddafi and, you know, like, um, Basar, uh, like you can point to Hussein, you can point all these people like they were quote unquote secular, but they were imposed. I mean, they so you've got post colonial doing that thing saying, okay, well, you have to decolonize, you have to get rid of all that. And then you've got the papers here. I mean, I've spoken to atheists out of the Middle East, and, and at one point, one of them was saying, telling me, like, you know, you guys are worrying about whether or not you're going to offend someone by something you say. And and like his friend had just been killed at, on the steps of a courthouse in Jordan on his way in for a blasphemy trial. And he's like, that's what we got to deal with. And you guys are worried about offending. It's that's what I like what's going on here. And, you know, we're not getting proper reporting for what's going on in North America, but like the chilling effect that has everywhere else, like that's what really worries me. It's if the West is no longer going to defend the ideals of the enlightenment, who will and what's going to replace it? That, that that I like I take that long view of where this stuff is coming from. I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and it's not just that um, the West is no longer willing to defend enlightenment ideals, which okay, they were flawed, but you know, mm -hmm. what have we produced that's better? That's a better way of protecting civil rights, right? Um, but um, um, the the worldview, that allows them to reject the enlightenment, to reject America, to reject civil rights because it failed as an ideal. So to reject it completely, that worldview is based on um, a very dangerous uh, philosophical point of view that doesn't believe in equality at all. doesn't believe equality exists. So, uh, you know, <laughs> and of course they're using like the freedom of the press and the first amendment and these gorgeous freedoms that we have in America uh, in order to argue that, you know, freedom is not possible. Civil rights are a hoax. It, you know, it's very sad. Um, and I think that there's, you know, it stems, you know, from kind of course like Hegel and Marx and critical race theory that came out of critical theory that we're all, um, you know, in, in some form or another trying to critique the failures of society. Um, and, but we've at this point sort of 
taken up a view in which um, we're no longer striving towards a better world, right? We have, you know, the kind of the worldview, the academic worldview that's taken over, that's been mainstreamed, I believe, through the American press, doesn't believe in a world in which a black and a white person can be equal, that there's something immutable about them that is more important that transcends the whole point of a liberal democracy. Well, I'm just going to push back a little bit on there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like when, I, when you said like, you know, they're saying the enlightenment didn't work. Yeah. Okay. I get it. You know, the America, the United States was the only country that was founded on the enlightenment. As far as I can tell, I mean, everything else, even Canada, which is a country after the United States, we don't have clearly written like you do in your constitution, your, you know, your bill of rights. Now, did it live up to that? No, it took until the late sixties for it to legally live up to that. But I think the way Rauch uh, describes it in Kindly Inquisitors, you know, the, what he calls a liberal science, it's like no one bats last. It, it's always self-improving. And it's because of that self-critique, because of that self-improvement. I mean, call it the West, call it whatever, like liberal secular democracies that came out of the Enlightenment are the only ones that will look back and say, you know what, that was wrong. We have to do better. Like China won't do that. You know, the Middle East won't do that. None of these places will look back at themselves and say we were wrong. Like, you know, you can't mention Tiananmen Square on, in China. Like, you know, it's, it's so I'm not saying that it didn't work. And it's, you know, this might sound like a like religious apology. Oh, it wasn't applied correctly. But if you actually look at what they did, like, you know, they had slaves. Even after slavery, you had Jim Crow, you had all these things coming up and it wasn't living up to those ideals. So like someone like Derek Bell, and when you mentioned critical race, you're like starting with the critical legal scholarship. I can see the frustration. Okay, it took 200 years for legally it to be equal, and there's still you know major discrepancies. So I can see the frustration where that comes from. But because of the frustration, at least if you see it moving in the right direction, at that point to throw it out. Um, I think it was John McWhorter recently. He, he was in one of his conversations with Glenn Lowry. He said, you know, we have to get back to a 1997 mindset. And that's what I told, that's what I've been telling people. And when I looked at, when I looked at this stuff and I started reading it, it was around the late nineties that the PhDs with an intersectional view would be coming out. And that's when it started getting out into making policy, getting into journalism slowly. I'm not saying it's, you know, it was a big flood at once, but, we had the first PhDs coming around the late nineties. And that's where I think we went from, you know, treat everyone by the care, uh, you know, conscious of their character than rather than the color of their skin. And then we went back to this identity-based politics. And I think it's, that's where the failure lies is it's, it was too much of the tolerance, like, you know, like Popper's version of tolerance where you tolerate it until it gets, until you have to take a legal recourse. And it was too much of that tolerance that allowed it to flourish. I mean, like, like I said, that's the little pushback I give. I, I don't think the enlightenment was, I'm not saying it was perfect, but I think it set up a system that allowed it to be self-correcting as it went along. Yeah, I think that's, I, I agree with that. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I think it's not, it's not a morally serious position to compare um, an autocratic regime to America that is, of course, still has problems. I mean, I might even be more extreme than you in thinking about where systemic racism does still persist in America. Like I can see that, I can say that, I can say, yeah, we have a lot of work to do 
and still say it's not a morally serious position to compare America to today to America in you know the 50s, to America in the 20s, to America during slavery. Um, and I think that that moral point of view has really been lost um, because of the mainstreaming of academic views. I mean, academia in a way is um, very good at <laughs> um, creating these sort of neural pathways where it's like, oh, well, I could see how that could logically follow from this and this and this, therefore it must be true. And taking out the moral point of view of like, wait a minute, <laughs> it's just not morally serious to compare America today to America before the civil rights movement. That doesn't mean we're perfect, you know? It does mean something very significant has happened and has changed. Like the academic side of it, um, you know, obviously like, 2013, 14, you started seeing all those things on YouTube and it went on, but I saw that video and it, it, it's one of the more striking ones for me was uh, Melissa Click when she called for muscle to get that student journalist removed. Now, right away in my mind, it's like, okay, why didn't the university look at the journalism department when you had a professor in your journalism department? calling for muscle to remove a student journalist at a protest on the university, asking people this, like a siling off the university where, you know, the chemistry department isn't going to critique English and English isn't going to critique physics, but the gender studies department can come in and say, well, you're misogynistic because you don't have enough women and they have to listen to them because they have a PhD in gender study. Yeah. I mean, to me, so um, it's funny because when I was getting my PhD um, between, I guess it was like 2006 and then 2000 to 2012, something like that, around that area. Um, but there was a lot of like postmodernism and critical theory in the department, in the English department where I was um, getting my PhD, but um, it wasn't quite, hadn't quite suffused the entire campus in the way that it has now, not just campus, but like all of sort of the liberal establishment and uh, a lot of like corporate America as well. It was, it was in, we studied the texts but it wasn't um, like an orthodoxy quite the way that it is now. Um, I do think though that there is something, uh, I think academics should not be given power. I mean, at least like in the humanities, because <laughs> let, me tell, let me tell you why, I'm gonna try and make this case and you'll tell me what you think mm -hmm. of this. So I remember the reason I got out of academia was I remember when I was writing my dissertation. So I had been working on this book for, so it took me seven years. You know, the first three years you're doing coursework, then you have your orals exams, and then you sit down to write a book, okay? I was writing about the 18th century. So I was writing about like John Locke and um, David Hume, and then a bunch of no early novelists, people who invented the novel. So you invested, let's say, you know, at the five-year point, the six-year point, you invested five, six years of your life in something. You want this to be your career and you have to write a book. You have to write a book. And you picked a bunch of books to write a book about. Now, for most people in the humanities, those books are books people have been studying for many, 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 many hundreds of years, right? And smart people, like not idiots, you know, like smart people have been reading and writing about these books for 200, 300 years, 400 years, depending on what period you choose. Okay. So you are, are then tasked with coming up with something new to say, and you're given a time frame in which to do it. It's like, go, okay. You have to come up with something new to say about this. Now, like 
I'm sorry, but like there's a limited number of new and interesting things you're going to be able to say about Shakespeare because a lot of really smart people have been writing about Shakespeare for many, 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 many years. So first of all, the incentive here is not towards intellectual honesty. It's towards a kind of creativity. It's towards being able to say something that sounds plausible, but is probably not accurate because all of the accurate things have pretty much been said, right? Or at least the most accurate things have already been said. So you're tasked with coming up with something that sounds good, that sounds like it, it could, you know, sounds truthy, but it probably isn't like the most obvious truth that you yourself could come up with because the most obvious truth was the thing that like all the other people came up with. So there is this sort of inherent tension where you have to come up with something, your whole career depends on it, right? But it's extremely difficult to think of something new. And then to top that all off, there's a hundred other people who are also extremely smart, who are working on the same texts across the country even more across the world, who are also trying to come up with new and interesting things about these same texts. So what that means is every time somebody else publishes on your subject, you're sitting there praying that it is either stupid or wrong, because if it's smart and right, you're out of a job, right? So the whole industry is built around this sort of like coming up with things that sound truthy in a creative way that's like, I'm glad it exists, but you could see how like we should not be basing law or morality or even mores or social, you know, social rules or just an understanding of society on the things these people are creating. Right. It's like it's nonsense. My question about like kind of on this. So the whole disrupt text thing, you know, decolonize the curriculum, whatever I think it was in the Washington Post yesterday. Howard wants to get rid of um, the classics and all that. And <clears throat> yet <clears throat> the university in the UK, I think Lester in their medieval English department, they're getting rid of Chaucer. I'm like, well, then what do you have left? <laughs> okay. Now is this, I know that comes from like post-colonial stuff and there's a mixture of critical race theory in that now as well, but is that also partly because, well, you know what, there's nothing left to say about Shakespeare. So let's get rid of them. We have something new coming. But, but just uh, one, know, okay, yeah. one, other, one last thing on that. Has any of these scholars that talks about this stuff actually gone to, let's say, Africa or India or anywhere and collected writings from, if you're talking the classics period, there's writing that goes back in India two, 3,000 years, you know, like 2,000 years there, the Stoic tradition. Has anyone from these departments that says it's disrupt text, have they gone to India to study those? I mean, I've read articles in like magazines like Aeon and things like that, but like no in-depth study like it's a good question yeah. no, it's no, just it's weird funny because no it is and it's funny because like at, so I'm religious and mm -hmm. I you know I, I I spend time in Israel I read Hebrew fluently I read Aramaic yeah. so I have access to these texts from my tradition that were written like thousands and thousands of years ago and mm -hmm. like there's an experience you get from there's like a humbling experience you get from a spiritual experience from reading something in its original language and understanding that it's it has traversed this history that is just like so much bigger than you like it creates this I'm not saying that like you know texts in the English tradition are worth that kind of I don't think they are <laughs> I think anything anything comes close to the Bible but you probably disagree with me about that a lot and we should get into that um as for your other question I have to say um I, from my point of view I just do I don't care very much about 
what happens at, I find these institutions to be extremely corrupt and I don't care about them. I don't care about anyone who goes to them. I care about the working class. I care about the fact that to make it in America, you have to go to one of these stupid institutions and get indoctrinated by a bunch of people who got PhDs like me, who spent time training to learn how to be creative and invent truthy bullshit excuse my language, like I, I'm really not invested at all in like what, ha- I'm not, I don't care about the elites or the quality of their souls. Like I, I care that America has given them too much power and I wanna take that power away and redistribute it, not just because they are gross and corrupt, but because it is a disaster for democracy that all the power is concentrated in the hands of the top 15%. And every four years we decide which 7% of the top 15% gets to rule. Like that's just a disaster and it's extremely dangerous. And as a Jewish person, I look at things that are, you know, bad for democracy as things that are extremely threatening to my people, but also to my people, the Americans. So I feel very much like it it doesn't matter what they're teaching, you know, at this university or that university. No, what matters is that in order to become a journalist whose job it is literally to record how other Americans are thinking, you now have the only pathway is through an Ivy League school where you're going to learn to have contempt for your fellow Americans and that's gonna influence your journalism and that is a disaster. So I'm much more invested in that question than I am in like, are they still teaching Shakespeare? Who I don't even think is that great. Like, are they still teaching Chaucer? Like, I think it's really important to have that people have, I think like religion is important to a society, although I think it's really important that there are not religious people too, but I, I think it's important that we have access to texts that we find that are humbling to us, but you can have that same experience and be humbled by people who just are around you who have less than you if you're not like, if you don't approach them with this condescension that elites and that Ivy Leagues and that our entire college education system is designed to create. I mean, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll get it like the, the religious thing. Okay. Like, no, I was born in a Muslim household. I was born in India. I didn't speak Arabic. I, I learned to read Arabic phonetically so I could pronounce the word, didn't know what that meant. So, you know, ended up reading the Quran. I didn't read the Quran in a language I understood until 25. And I, by that point, I, I said, I, I just couldn't believe it anymore. I mean, like, you know, I'll give you an example. Just uh, the sun sets in a puddle of mud every night. Um, you know, this is out of the Quran. Uh, sperm comes between the, the ribs and the backbone. You know, and there, there was no evidence for it. Whereas, like, I was always a curious kid, so the scientific method and learning about that, that, that made sense. So as a belief structure, no, but, I mean, I, I'd given a, a my one and only talk, and I was on a little panel, and we were talking about some of this stuff, and said, you know, like, the hardline approach of get rid of religion um, or just break the spell and walk away. I'm like, no, that's not it. It's like, if you actually, you know, if you go back to the Abrahamic faiths and the story of Genesis, God is not hiding science. He's saying, I created all this. This is, this came from me. So, I mean, when I say science, quote unquote science, it's God saying, this is all, you know, I'm the wellspring where that from this all comes from worship me. The knowledge that was denied was the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just all knowledge, right? It was, so that was the philosophies, that was the arts, that was the storytelling. And so if you, like, you know, uh, someone like Dawkins, I mean, I know he's getting a lot of grief and I, I think he's a little too strident and he's a little too stern on when he goes on that, like, just get rid of it, just stop believing and walk away and like, think critically. It's like, no, you have to give them something else. So I, I get that. And I, I, you know, I can, 
like my mom's very religious. It's, it's Ramadan right now. She's fasting. Um, you know, I understand what it can bring to someone. I just, I'm like, you know, it, I go with the Sagan approach. You know, if you want to find yourself a, a cosmic purpose, find yourself, you know, if you want a cosmic purpose, right, find yourself right. a worthy goal. Like I, I go more towards that. No, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I just, I look around at American society and I feel um, very, very much that it is suffering from a lack of religion and, and just from a spiritual dearth. And, and that brought me back to religion. I was very secular for many years and that kind of looking around at society and feeling like, they have not replaced it with anything. And so they're left to their own devices. And now they're elevating these like academic ideas that are really problematic and <laughs> erase the, the sanctity of human life. Like if you can find me a culture that truly values the sanctity of human life to an infinite degree, the way that religion forces us to, asks us to, doesn't always, right? For yeah. sure, there are religious cultures that don't do that, but find me a secular culture and I will follow that as well. Like I. Um, but I feel that when you look at secular cultures today, um, they really, that sanctity of human life, um, the infinite value of a human life is the first thing to go. And, and that's why you're seeing sort of resurgence of calls for violence on the left as elevated as a moral goal. Um, of course, religions have elevated, yeah. you know, violence okay. as a goal as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, no, no, I, I, look, I, I'm not trying to like, you know, I'm not trying to get you here on what about it was whatever, but yeah, no, no, like I get what you're saying. And, but also look at the, like, when I look at some of this stuff coming out of the Academy and things, and so, I mean, like, if you look at some of the work that, um, Jonathan Haidt did, and then Lenore Skenazi, I don't know if you know who she is from, uh, she did uh, free range kids. And then so that she's got an organization called Let's Grow and they they do little projects for you know school age kids so they get more independence and stuff like that. So around eight the mid-80s when you had the safetyism come in, like so like stranger danger and kids are getting, you know, CNN, kids are getting kidnapped every day and like a you know, different picture on a milk carton every day type of thing. And um so you scared parents. Oh my god, I forgot <laughs> <laughs> but I mean you scared people. Yeah. So yeah. now you've come to the point where, I mean, I was, you know, you read about parents being arrested or having their kids taken away because they let them go to the park or, you know, things like that. So, and at the same time, you had the cult of, you know, um, you can do anything, you can be whatever you want, everyone's special. And it's like, okay, yeah, fine. Everyone's an individual and everyone has capacity, but no, like, I'm not going to slam dunk. Like I, I just, you know, I, you know, like I'm not going to run a marathon. Like I know what I can and can't do. So I think this, this self-esteem thing that came up, which I'm not saying, you know, treat kids like garbage and make them feel bad about themselves, but it, it's kind of like also what I hear a lot from the left and even like from some libertarian circles, it's all about rights, nothing about responsibilities. So mm-hmm. like you had that culture with the kids, you had the safetyism thing, then this stuff comes in. And you have uh, Marcuse's idea of repressive tolerance where, um, you know, anything that harms someone has to be repressed. And if you, you know, like offense is harm. So I'm not saying it was planned. I'm not trying to say it was, it was just all these things meeting up and then it's coming distilled out of the Academy. And it's just, there, you're just refining that over and over again, just like with the ideas of the enlightenment. Um, again, if you take, uh, I think it was David Deutsch's book, beginning infinity, he talks about different pockets of enlightenment throughout history. And it was, that was basically what it was. And each one built on the other, refined it. Well, you have this stuff come through the universities. It sounds good. It feels good. It's like, who doesn't want to be anti-racist? You know, who doesn't want to fight transphobia or whatever, like any of these catchphrases. 
And so they just keep refining it and refining it and making it really precise. And frankly, like I worry about kids. Like I, my, my biggest focus is education, like K through 12. I, if you, I don't know if you were around for like the gangs in the eighties and the Crips and the bloods. And if you looked at the skinhead reaction to that, the FBI and people who were like looking at gangs, like, these kids are disenfranchised. They're loners. They're looking for something to belong to. If you have a K through 12 education system, that's going to divide kids by race, tell them that they're either oppressed or oppressor who's done what to whom. And you know, which is what's going on. I mean, you have a smorgasbord for, ISIS, you have a smorgasbord for Antifa, you have a smorgasbord for Proud Boys, Boogaloo, whatever you want, you know, like whatever groups. And you, there's going to be more extremists coming out of high school. Like, you know, people say a school does a jail pipeline. I'm like, no, no, it's a school to extremism pipeline now. It's going straight from school. You're going to go join Antifa or something. No, I mean, I think you're totally right. Like I, I, my focus when I think about this is often on, you know, how it desiccates the soul to be asked to racialize everything and every person you meet and think about them through a racial lens. And, you know, there was that Yale study that found that um, white liberals dumb down their speech when they talk to people of color, but white conservatives do not. And I remember when I read that and I had this realization of like, I do that. And it was sort of one of the first nails in the coffin of my own wokeness, where I was like, what kind of a worldview produces dumbing down my language to someone based on their race? But that's what they found. And, and I instantly recognized that in myself and other people that I knew. And um, so like, I, I often think about it at that level, like this is desiccating the soul, it's desiccating society. But I think you're right that there's a much more important danger here, which is that it's it's sowing the grounds, the seeds of extremism because it is an extremist point of view. I mean, it is, it, you know, an extremist point of view. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's it's devastating. And yeah. and yeah. it's not solving the problem. Right. So it's like that's the irony here is, you know, a DEI committee at uh, some prep school that charges $50,000 a year for, for, for high school prep, you know, for the elites, that is not doing a thing to help, you know, the kid on the other side of town who can barely make it to, to school every day, who's in a failing public school, who can't read, who's in, you know, 10th grade. And, and that's the thing that really bothers me about it is um, I feel that this whole, the way that we're talking about race today, it could not be better designed to perpetuate inequality and perpetuate the status quo if somebody had done it intentionally. I don't think they're doing that intentionally. I think it's a moral panic. But if they had intentionally designed the discourse to keep people of color poor and to keep the elites in power and to make the elites just like slightly more diverse, but still tiny and in power, they could not have done a better job than than this racial moral panic. And, And that's the thing that bothers me the most about it is it's using, it's to, from the way I see it is, it is um, affluent white liberals using black pain and using our, hist- our ugly history of race to withdraw from the social contract, to withdraw from the idea that, as you said, we have responsibilities to each other. We have responsibilities to people in our society that we may not even like, that we may not agree with. Like we are part of a common good. We're part of a body politic, which is one. And, and the, the, the liberal elites 
are using this racial narrative to further withdraw. They already don't make use of the public. You know, they don't send their kids to public schools. They don't need police officers because they live in, you know, very protected enclaves. Um, but they are using this to, to justify that withdrawal from the common good. And I think they're doing it unconsciously. They think this is the moral high ground. And so uh, that's what I, <laughs> but when you try to point this out, people get very upset. Okay, well, I said something, I mean, the, the, the limit of my humor is just being just snarky. So, I mean, I said something along the lines of like, they can't see the victims for the brown people. Like, I mean, and, and I did this in, in like relation to Islam, um, you know, like with ex-Muslims and you have an ex-Muslim speak out. And I mean, I see this, I've seen this happen to my friends, like ex-Muslim women, they speak out and they put something, they'll post something on Facebook. They'll get a rape threat. They'll post a screenshot of the rape threat and they're the one who gets banned because they posted the screenshot of the rape threat. And it's like, okay, you're protecting the Muslims because you think they're brown folk, but here's a minority within a minority that's getting abused and you can't see it. And it's like, when you mentioned the working class, like, yes, okay, I'm not not a Marxist or communist or whatever, but I mean, the left focused on working class, which is an important issue. I mean, it's, I mean, up until I guess the late nineties, I was majority of the United States I mean, I'd still, I'm not saying there isn't any now, but as in, you know, as, as industry moved away, you had less of a working class and they went into more into like retail spaces and stuff like that. So, I mean, that all shifted and it, but like, if you, if you make policies that will benefit working class people, those policies will, you know, proportionally benefit black and brown folk more because <laughs> they are proportionally more in the working class. And it's, it's like you said, it's, you know, again, what Jordan McCorder said, we have to get it back to a 1997 mindset. It's when you focus the policy on helping people instead of focusing the policy on helping race, that's where, that's where you go wrong. And I can understand certain things. Like I know there's a reparations thing and I'm not talking about the reparations bill, but there's a way to look at reparations saying, you know what, because of redlining, because of this, this neighborhood was you know, hurt we're going to give people interest-free business loans. We're going to pump up the schools. You put money into the neighborhood to help people generate wealth. But again, those neighborhoods are no longer all segregated and they're, you know, they're a mixture of everything. So you're helping everyone in that neighborhood. So, I mean, I can see that as a way of reparations and it's, it's that, like like I said, the focusing on race is not going to help anyone. And it's, we had that in Canada. Our prime minister last year said we were going to, give out loans to black businesses. And early this year, a story broke how they told a business that was, I think the whole board was black. Almost all the employees were black. They told them they weren't black enough. Boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you have weird stuff like that happen. It's just this idea of focusing on race, just, I mean, I've seen that. I've seen what that does. Oh, I. I saw sectarian violence or the, the effects of sectarian violence in Bosnia, I, you know, in India, like, I mean, this is going back when I was a little kid and it wasn't even so much. It was a black person. It was, it was, it was a woman much darker than me, but I was about six years old or less than six. It was before we moved in. My grandfather to punish me if I was being bad to, to threaten a punishment. He said, Oh, we're going to marry you off to the black woman down the road. And it was just like someone from someone with much darker skin from South. And it's like, I've seen this kind of stuff. And I'm like, we, you don't want to bring it back. Yeah, I think people from other cultures can recognize a caste system, you know, when they see one. 
Um, but it's, you know, so coming back to journalism, there's a conversation now, you know, a lot of the cancel culture has been around like, well, newsrooms are too white. And it's true, they are extremely white. It's a real problem. The reason they're so white is because you have to be rich to become a journalist today. You know, if you solved that problem, you would solve the diversity problem. Solving the diversity problem does nothing to change the pipeline problem, which is an economic one. Um, so it's just a distraction, right? It's just a, a distraction to say, okay, well, let's, you know, that, that every single black journalist graduating from Harvard will now get 12 job offers, right? But what have you done for all of the people who would be amazing journalists who are in public housing right now in New York City, who like just cannot access this profession, even though they would instantly be amazing at it. It's, it's really, it's a distraction. I mean, I think it's just a big smoke screen for, because Americans like to believe that we are in a classless society and especially liberals who believe in meritocracy, you know, they believe in this, they're drunk on this fiction that their own status is merited, has been, you know, because of their intelligence and their talent. That's why they make so much more money than their nanny, you know, like that has nothing to do with heredity, has nothing to do with the way society is structured to and what it what it what it um, benefits. And, and coming back to your point about how Americans, you know, up until the 70s. You had a lot of working class Americans who essentially were living middle-class lives because wages were rising. They had a huge say in how the corporations were run. Workers had a lot of power. They were very organized. And because I think in part, because the working class was abandoned by American journalists, all that sort of started to change. You know, wages started to stagnate, offshoring of manufacturing, right? We, failing communities, um, we lost that kind of what was essentially a very broad <clears throat> countervailing force to the powers of the elites. <clears throat> That's Michael Lynn's term for it. We lost that. And, and it's a disaster. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible. Now you have people with middle class jobs who are living working class and worse lives, right? because of the gig economy and because of just the redistribution of wealth upwards. So I think we really, our, our society is in an extremely unhealthy place. And the whole race conversation is a way of not having that conversation. Yeah, it makes you feel good. You can talk about something else. I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's just easy to say, well, oh, the so-and-so is racist, feel good about yourself and walk away. Like, okay, I've done my bit, but, um, one thing you goes beyond do. that because if the problem is race, yeah. you can't do anything to fix it, right? It, you get to be the hero without actually having to fix anything or change anything about your life, right? Yeah. Our status as elites is unearned. We are living high off the backs of the less fortunate. But if the problem is race and not class, race and not economics, oh, all we can do about that is feel guilty right? Which is, of course, something like liberals love, right? That's like the best <laughs> thing you could do. Like, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to vote for anybody differently. You certainly don't have to respect the guy who voted for Trump who lives down the road, right? Like, all you can do is feel guilty. It's like the perfect solution. And again, I don't think this is like necessarily on purpose. I think it's, we're in a moral panic, which sort of takes over as a life force of its own. Mm -hmm. But it is something we absolutely have to you know, it's just so weird the things you see people who consider themselves to be lefties defending like it's just so so strange like you would never expect it like now they're all out there like defending these like 
elite private schools and elite public schools because they don't like the people criticizing them. Like ever, or, you know, okay, I'll give you another example. AOC's Green New Deal, okay? Like there is a tension right now between the needs of the working class and the new environmentalism, right? There are people in the new environmental camp who are literally suggesting we start buying cheap environmental machinery from China right? Like it's literally like the, the, there's a tension between the environmentalists and the working class and the so-called socialists, they're on the side of the environmentalists. I just don't understand that at all. Like that makes no sense to me or like the the student loans, the $50,000 in student loan debt relief. You have people who are lefties who are social, who has $50,000 in loans? Only somebody who has gotten a graduate school degree, right? Like a dentist, an accountant, you know, a doctor, a psych- psychoanalyst, like, and, and if you like, if you suggest this, they go crazy. And it's like, I'll just say one more thing about that. It's like, like, they say, what do you mean? There are people who took out loans and didn't finish college. I'm like, great, write a bill for those people, write a bill for if you're making under 50k, under 80k, under 100k, and you still have $100,000 in loans, I'm totally happy to do that. You find me a working class person who has this burden. Great. But they, this is, and I have no problem with people voting for something in their own economic interest. Go, go vote for somebody who's going to get rid of your student loans, you journalist, you dentist, whatever, but don't insult me by calling that social justice. Don't insult me by telling me that that is socialism. That's not socialism. (laughs) That's elitism. That's even voting in your own economic interest, which is completely fine. But it's that whole like, and Twitter just amplifies this so much. It, it's who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Because you get mobbed by people telling you something insane to the extent that you start to think, well, oh, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's 100,000 people tweeting at me angrily that I'm a moral pervert. Like, obviously, they can't all be wrong. So the whole, what happens is you lose your moral compass because your moral compass is pointing this way. You're pretty sure you're right. But there's 100,000 people pushing it like that. I mean, how you have to be very strong to say, I know I'm right. And I think that that is a huge problem as well in journalism, where journalists are addicted to Twitter. It's where, you know, the conversation happens. And they've, journalists have lost the ability to say, no, I'm going to believe my eyes over this, what you're telling me is is true, which I know is wrong. But I mean, the student loan thing too, it's just, you know, like the whole college thing right now. Okay, first of all, the student loan thing, if you want to get rid of student loans, I and you can talk about, helping out people with enormous loans right now because of, I mean, I put some of that on the university, like, you know, paying $700,000 to a diversity officer is not helping lower cost of admissions. Right. Okay. Like, so cut the fat at universities, first of all, like, you know, make that, make the entrance cheaper, but you know, the things like what Harvard and Yale were doing by docking Asian students, SAT scores and bumping up black and Brown students, SAT scores. Like, okay. First of all, I find, the affirmative action thing disgusting like hire me because i'm qualified don't hire me because i'm brown that you know that's a whole other thing but and then you're going back to high schools now and you know grade schools and you're getting rid of standardized testing or you want to get rid of standardized testing you want to get rid of any kind of scoring you want to get rid of any kind of measurements because you know it's going to make someone feel bad it's like no you want those measurements you want to fix those measurements so that when you get to the university you don't have to give someone 200 points on their SAT. 
you know, like, yeah, a Congressman Jamal Bowman tweeted, um, standardized testing is racist. And then he had a, a comic. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was actually him. I'm sure it was his staff because it was just so stupid and so gross. Um, he had a, a comic that was like, this is why standardized testing is racist. And it showed different animals representing, yeah. I guess, different races. And like, I guess, you know, the white children are the monkeys who can climb the tree. And then there was also an elephant and a hippo. And, and those are the, you know, essentially are the poor children. And it was just that that is racism. I mean, not to suggest that there is an inherent inability to compete. It's garbage. It's there is a huge class divide in America. There are a lot of poor children who are just not getting access to good education in large part due to liberal pieties. And I say that as a massive liberal, like unlike you, I'm very pro affirmative action. I'm pro reparations and pro public schools. Like, you know, I, I believe in all these things, but I feel that there's that liberals have lost their way and that they are sort of giving up on like ideas like equality and freedom. And, you know, the idea that like, all children are created equal in the image of God and we are failing them, you know, and the way to make up for that is not by making ourselves feel good. And it's very funny because, you know, as somebody who's always been on the left, always been a liberal, like conversations that I'm now having, like you talk to conservatives and they're like, oh yeah, they've been calling us racist for BS reasons for generations. You know, they, they, they have been having that. And you start to realize like, oh, like, you know, maybe it goes a lot deeper. Like, you know, you, you, us having these experiences as liberals is very like shocking and like, oh my God, I have to recalibrate, I have to rethink this, I have to rethink that. But it's like, you know, there are a lot of people on the right who have like a lot of history dealing with, you know, these kind of, I mean, I'm sure you've had that experience okay. as well. Not that you're on the right, but just. Okay, look, I mean, I for me, it was the, the late eighties, the first PC craze. And I mean, it was the first time I heard, like I was, so Quebec, the education system is a little weird. It goes to grade 11 to high school. Then you have two years of something called CGEP, which is like a junior college. Then it's three years for your bachelor. So it's the same amount of time, but it's just kind of broken up differently. So when I was in CGEP, I started hearing things like the, the you know, it was a, in the first PC stuff. So it was right around the time, I guess, intersectionality was coming out and stuff. It was the late 80s. And, you know, you can't be racist if you're not white. Like only white people can be racist. And I, and I heard that, I'm like, what are you talking about? That's just stupid. And then, I mean, like, and if I push back against that, someone's like, well, stop being racist. I'm like, well, I thought I couldn't be racist because I'm brown. Like, you know, just... <laughs> so, I mean, like, for me, it, it was the well-meaning liberal that I found more racist than, you know, uh, Richard Spencer, right? Someone would call me a packy. Yeah, fine. Okay, you're an ignorant person. I don't care. But, oh, well, you need special care because you're brown and you don't get it. Well, you know, like, screw you. That's even worse. Like, that's mm -hmm. what I found was worse. And so, yeah, I mean, like, as far as, like, okay, affirmative action, I think it had a place. I think it had a place right after the Civil Rights Act and things like that. Like, now, what, Prop 16 in California, I think that was a horrendous idea. Like, I, I think now you got to stop focusing on quotas and affirmative action type of thing. And you know what, this school is not doing well. Let's get that school to help it needs. Like that's what you got to be focusing it on, not on, well, we failed them up until university. So now what we're going to do is we're going to boost their scores you know, artificially, get them to Harvard and they're going to drop out and they're going to feel even more dejected. And you know, it's even worse. Like that's like, I'm, I'm not for like keeping people down, but I, I think that affirmative action had its purpose and you need to find a better solution. Cause I mean, we've been doing it for what, 50 years now. 
I mean, it's definitely not doing what we hoped it was doing. I think it is a, one of the few ways that um, the kind of establishment has allowed us to just keep front and center the idea that it is not okay that <clears throat> these disparities still exist, which I think mm -hmm. is important. But um, something else that I think is relevant to this discussion is um, the, the reason that affirmative action succeeded is, is like, and continues to succeed. It's not like institutions give up power willingly. You know, like when I look at what's happening at the New York Times or what's happening at these elite private schools now where they're all being sort of inundated with woke culture and DEI language and equity and everything is about race and this re-racialization narrative. It's not like the New York Times and Breerly and Andover woke up one day and said, oh, actually we're gonna share power. Like that is not how institutions work. Like, oh, actually we're gonna willingly give up our control over our children's futures and the future of this nation that we've had for, you know, since it existed. That, that's just not how it works. And it is nuts to me that liberals don't recognize this. This is a very lefty point of view. Institutions do not willingly give up power. You have to wrest it from them. So what that means is if they are instituting all of these reforms, if they are obsessing over this issue, it's clearly not because it is demanding any sacrifice of power, it's because it is actually consolidating their power. Like this is just like a very classic lefty reading of the situation, but one that like everybody on the left is like, if you say this, it's like completely anathema. Like, and I don't understand that either. Like, how is it that we've, that the left has, has completely abandoned the kind of economic causes that you, traditionally associate with them, and even the analyses that you would traditionally associate. Well, yeah, my thing on, on like the journalism side, like I took it, so right after 9-11, you know, there was patriotism in the United States and you know, us against mm -hmm. them. And I, I understand that, I get it. And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't, you know, there was some jingoism and stuff, but, and I mean, Bill Maher got a show canceled because he questioned you know, the United States and said, oh, we asked for a type of thing, right? Like he got like his first show uh, politically incorrect. He got that canceled right around that time. Well, I mean, he, he said something. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know. I, I, I'm not camera, but he said like, you know, our foreign policy, we kind of were asking for it. Something along those lines. I think he said he something. Kind like, just, yeah, he kind yeah, of yeah, justified yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but. I'm anti-cancel culture, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 no, no. I, like I know what I know, but what I'm saying is like, because of the patriot, I think if he had said that six months later, yeah, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have had it nearly as bad because that honeymoon period with patriotism ended really fast. Yeah, and yeah. then like, yeah. okay, I was overseas for most of it, but you know, I, I mean, I get newspapers on the military bases, and you know, we had, you know, if you're on an American base, you got like CNN and stuff like that, and you would see some of the things where patriotism was being made to be racist, and then if you look in the Obama years, how everything was racist. Like I was joking with a friend of mine, I'm like, you know what the making patriotism and Islamophobia racist and pinning that on the right wing was like a trial balloon during the Bush years. And then they just switched to racism during the Obama years. And it was because now, I mean, Substack is hosting right wing people don't read Substack. I mean, you have New York times, like, wasn't there a New York times article about that or something like how they were going to like get information from Substack or something. I, I can't remember exactly what they said, but yeah, it's just, so they just, it's, I think they started that after nine 11, they, they paint, Right wing equals bad. 
Okay, but so let me ask you something. Um, so, and I'm asking this with humility because you are part of this community, I'm not. But um, like, to me, it seems like what, what Muslim Americans <clears throat> were going through after September 11th was very similar to Asian American attacks right now, the Latino American attacks after Trump, like that they were, <clears throat> it, the only way I can describe this is with a Talmudic term because it's so apt. There's a Talmudic term called hefker, which means, um, let's say you find a wallet in the street. Are you allowed to keep it or do you have to work and try and find the owner? And the way you decide that is, does it look like it's obviously been abandoned? Does it look like the owner has given up hope of finding it? Hefker means like abandoned. It means like nobody's coming to, to look after them. And, you know, populations, I feel, get this feeling of hefker, like they're nobody's responsibility. So it happened to Orthodox Jews in 2019 in New York City. Like there was this feeling that they're free, um, you know, free for all, like that nobody's going to care too much if you attack them. And then people on the margins of society, I feel like mentally ill people, young kids, they get that, they get those messages telegraphed to them and then they attack those people when they're, you know. And I feel that after September 11th, um, Muslim Americans were very much in that category. Like there was this feeling that they were not safe. They were not. And when I hear Republicans still sometimes talking about Islam, I feel that they do so in a way that um, makes my skin crawl and makes me feel like my, you know, Muslim American brothers and sisters are less safe because of how they're talking about it. So I hear what you're saying, but on the other hand, I do feel like there's like real world consequences to our language and, and we should be careful about that. I don't know. what. Yeah, but I, I get that. Okay. First yeah. of all, I was in Canada when that happened and you know, the, the following year I went overseas. Um, so, but what I saw in the United States afterwards, I mean, right away, uh, this has nothing to do with Islam started. Like, I mean, I think Bush said that on it, like the second day after mm -hmm. the fact. It's like, okay, I, I blame people for their actions. Like, I'm not, like, I, I'll try to understand it and I'll try to think why someone did that action. I'm, you know, someone hits me over the head, I blame them. You know, someone else could have told them I was sleeping with that person's wife and that's why they did it, but I still blame them for hitting me over the head, right? Like, that's, mm -hmm. um, so, if they'd been more honest about Islam, okay, first of all, I think there's a huge ignorance problem. Like, not an, it was just, oh, it's just another Abrahamic faith. It's just like Christianity. It's just like Judaism. It's like, no, it's it's quite a bit different. It's got the original roots, but then it it branches off and it, it goes off on its own little things. Um, so there was that ignorance factor. <clears throat> I mean, it, you had weird things happening in the United States. I remember reading about one woman in Washington, D.C. She was a Lebanese Christian and she was an elderly woman. Well, elderly, I think she was in her 60s at the time and she was she did translation out of her house. And it was, I remember it was a little basement, you know, a semi-basement uh, in a brownstone that you go down these stairs and like, it had all been smashed in because she had Arabic writing on the outside. And so Arabic Muslim, um, that's another thing like where, and that comes from like groups like care and stuff like that. They make Arabic equate with Muslim mm -hmm. where there's majority of the Arabs in the United States aren't Muslim. You know, majority of them are Christian. Oh, Christian? Yeah. oh I didn't know that. That's yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, you have to look at that. Like, so there was things like, that. I mean, Sikhs were attacked. And again, it was because of the, I think it was because of the stifling of speech after about that six month grace period where patriotism was no longer. Okay. You know, if you criticize Islam, you were racist. Whereas mm -hmm. if you, you know, or you were right wing or how could you do that there? You know, you're going to put people in danger. It's like, well, you know what? Um, by not criticizing Islam, you're putting people in the Middle East in danger. Mm 
And it's so funny because you were in Bosnia. And so you were probably like, you know, Islam and race are not like. <laughs> oh, no, like- I, I was in Bosnia. Look, I was in Afghanistan. Um, so the Danish cartoons came out in 2005. Then mm-hmm. the, the the preachers in the Middle East, like the imams of the Middle East, created the worst ones to, to stir up the. Uh, I was in Afghanistan in 2006. And some imam or a mullah in Kabul um, used those cartoons again to rile up the crowd. And I mean, I was. The, wow. the, he- the headquarters base was 500 meters by f- it was a square 500 meters by 500 meters right it was mm-hmm. a small little place had maybe 2500 troops mm-hmm. and we had you know thousands of people riding outside the door because there was a danish uh wow. there was a danish contingent on the headquarters base so their flag was flying up there i mean it was it was scary so i've yeah I've, that affected me like you know like having something like that but i think the whole conversation around islam went wrong i think both sides went wrong I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know what you're talking about with some of the Republican things, but the problem with Islam and the problem with some of this woke stuff, I think there's, uh, okay, not Richard Spencer, but Robert Spencer, the guy from Jihad Watch. I mean, not a mm-hmm. fan of the guy or anything like that, but there are other people like Daniel Pipes and uh, Anne-Marie Waters, okay, who are right wing, but they'd actually read the Quran. Like Tommy Robinson wrote his own Quran, right? Like these people right, read... But- no, no, but, no, just, but just... I, I, stuff I, in my book. Sorry, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, well, what I'm saying is like they read it. A lot of the people I was speaking to on the left, yeah. Oh, they don't really believe that. Oh, they don't want to kill apostates. Oh, they don't want to kill homosexuals. I'm like, you haven't read this stuff. They have. That allowed the Robert Spencers and the Anne Marie Waters to corrupt the message. Like, I had never heard the term Takia until about 2015. Takia is a Shia thing. Shias used to commit Takia in Sunni regions because you could lie about your faith to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. It was not a Muslim edict to go out and commit Takia. Mm-hmm. But Robert Spent, like, so. After I started hearing that, anytime someone mentioned Takiya, my eyes would glaze over. I'm like, this is not a serious person. It was just like, a, so you had some of the same stuff with this woke thing. Like the majority of the people I learned it from are left wing. But you had an article in the Washington, uh, in the Wall Street Journal last year saying, oh, all woke criticism is from the right wing. It's like, no, it's not. You're, you're like that space was seated because, I mean, there was a few things that happened um, with atheism. Like you had the atheism plus in like 2010 that injected some of this woke stuff into it. Um, you know, it was easier to criticize Christianity, especially in the States. I'm not saying that, you know, evangelicalism, like that poses a much greater risk to social cohesion in the United States than Islam would. So I can get what, but it was still a lot of ignorance. So I, I'm not, no, I don't like wait, some wait, of the rhetoric. Can you say more about that? You think evangelicalism poses a greater threat to social cohesion? Than Islam, yeah, for sure. How so? How so? Because there's because more it's tribal. Of- What's well, tribal? There's more of them. You had Reconstructionist Christians in, uh, you know, like I mean, when I say evangelicalism, I'm throwing a broad brush, like very fundamentalist Christianity, like you know, mm-hmm. so uh, they're like evangelicalism, like I said, like the if you want to go really, really far, like the Ken Hams of the world, uh, and then like the Reconstructionist, like the Dominion Christians who want to bring back, you know, the rules of the Ten Commandments, you know, like stone your child if they're <laughs> misbehaving. I think that might not go over so well, but like so, so I mean, like. Islam is not that big in the United States. I'm not saying Islam, I, I think as a, as for social policy and things like that, I think evangelicalism would be a bigger threat. I think wokeism now is the biggest threat, but you know, I, I don't, you know, if you put evangelical in, in Islam, like Islam didn't have the the people to mm-hmm, change mm-hmm. the policies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, um, one thing I want to ask you, like, I'm going to, I don't want to keep you too long. Cause I figure, you know, you've got a job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You'd mentioned anti-Semitism. Now, this yeah. is something I've seen. Like, 
again, I mean, if you read Derek Bell's play, uh, I think it's called Space Traders. So I mean, Derek Bell, whatever, founder of Critical Race Theory, godfather of it, whatever. I mean, the play was about aliens that come down. They're going to take away all the black people. Jews negotiate the trade and get all this gold. Like What? Yep. Look up, uh, look up Derek Bell's Space Traders. Um, and, and, and Okay. <laughs> but like this whole idea of whiteness, like property being whiteness. And, you know, if you go back to Audre Lorde's paper, uh, The Master's Tools, like she was equating capitalism with, with whiteness. And so I'm seeing, like, you know, you had it with Asia, you have it with Asians, or well, Asians have taken on whiteness because they're doing so well in school, blah, 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 you know, upper echelons of like, you know, household income and things like that. But it, it was the same thing, like, um, the, there was a book in Defense of Looting, and there was one cha- section, and he's talking about the riots in, in, um, in LA, then the riots, like, the riots in the Watts area, and it's like, you know, Jews and Koreans were the face of capital in their neighborhoods. I'm like, this is like a really disgusting hatred that's coming back up. And I mean, it's scary. It's, it's just, you know, like, like, like I, I said to someone, if you really want to understand what I'm talking about, read, you know, Hannah Arendt, like, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Like it's, and I'm not trying to, you know, like people will blame, like, I, like, I, like, and I've heard some of it, like, you know, cause the Frankfurt school was Jewish people. And so they're blaming this on, like, you have the right wing now also blaming this on Jewish people. You have the left wing using this to say Jewish people. I mean, I was joking with a friend of mine. She's of Moroccan heritage. She's Jewish. And I said, you know what? Give it less than two years. And I think now it'd be six months where they're going to say anti-Semitism can only be directed towards Jews of color because Jews that if it's, if you're a white Jew, you've got whiteness, you no longer have, you know, any oppression. Like I'm, I'm, I, I'm predicting this. And like, so like, have you, like, where do you, like, obviously you don't like it, but I mean, like, where do you come on that? Like the, the, the rise in just casual anti-Semitism. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. It just, it's horrible and it's horrible the um the vigor with which some Jews will defend it. It's just the whole thing is just horrible. Like the the pick me Jews who are out there defending, you know, like Randy Weingarten a couple weeks ago, the head of the teachers union in America, the biggest teachers union in America, she's Jewish, married to a rabbi. She said, somebody asked her, dude, like you got so much money to go back to school. You all got vaccinated, you jumped the lines and you're still not going back to school. Why aren't you going back to school? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Why are, what's up with, with in-person learning? And she went, I have a very specific message for Jews asking this question. Jews belong to the ownership class. You used unions to get up there and now you're pulling up the ladder. And, and it's just rank anti-Semitism. And so many people out there defending her, not just everybody on the left, but like so many liberal Jews like saying a Jewish person can't say something anti-Semitic what like don't say Jews are part of the ownership class no one should say that ever like that is an inaccurate statement that is an anti-Semitic canard like don't there's Jewish kids in public schools who have to know now that the head of the teachers union said that about them it's just it's a disaster and the the you're you're absolutely right just the casualness of this the justification through woke philosophy Jews are white Jews have benefited from white supremacy you're like literally calling Jews Nazis at this point. It's so horrifying. And it's like, I'm so glad you can see it because so many people just can't see it because a big portion of Jews in America don't face the same kinds of discrimination that other marginalized communities face. Therefore, they are beyond 
you know, caring about. And I think an important point to make is the reason to care about anti-Semitism is not because, you know, Jews are also victims like other marginalized communities. Like the reason to care about it is because we are all humans and we are all created in the image of God. And when you allow the dehumanization of anybody, of anybody, you are threatening the basis of society. So never justify that. I mean, like what the idea that there is some higher goal, this is what bothers me very much about left-wing Twitter, the idea that there's a higher goal that could justify any form of dehumanization, any form of cruelty, any form of violence, you know, either real violence, right? Like you see in Portland and Seattle or verbal attacks or just like, like, it's fine. We all sometimes say mean things. We all sometimes say disgusting things to people. But the idea that that, that is justified, that that is morality, that it is moral to justify anti-Semitism, that the moral high ground lies with defending the oldest hatred, it's horrifying. I mean, and it's good people of, of conscience, Jewish and not Jewish, like, just have to speak up against it. So I, I truly appreciate that you've noticed it and that you're saying something about it because it is, it is very scary. I mean, I, I go like, obviously like when it's more in the news, when it's less in the news, you feel more and less. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say I feel like physically unsafe as a Jew, but I do feel that our culture is headed in a direction that is like very antithetical to Jewish people, Jew, the Jewish nation, Jewish religion, and Jewish values, and that there's a huge contingent within the Jewish community who's kind of going there with it, because of course, Jews are very much in this moral panic about race. So it's sad, and and thank you for bringing it up. Okay, one of the worst things I saw though, like I, I don't wanna belabor this, um, but it was when you mentioned the, the Orthodox community, uh, I think it was, was it Hanukkah of 2019 or 2020? Yeah. 2019, yeah. yeah. Like the last attack that the like the really horrific one where the you know I think it was the most people killed and it was a black guy who did it. I think he was one of the black Israelites yeah, or black. I, I, I can't remember what the groups. But there was an article that said you know let's be careful not to let whiteness consume us. Talking to the Jewish community, and I'm like, pardon, you were killed. Like members of your community were killed. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like okay, yes, in this instance it was a black person. But I mean, if that had been a white person, would they have let us not be consumed by our blackness or something like that? Like, I mean, it, it, it's this. It was horrifying. It was you know, so we horrifying. we don't want to talk about. The, yes, this bad thing happened to us, but let yeah, don't be racist. Don't go and say say yes, it was all these n words that killed us or anything like that. I'm not, you know, I'm not asking for that. You know, like I, mean, I don't think <laughs> any same the options. <laughs> yeah, you know, there there is a middle ground. There is a middle ground there somewhere, right? Like, like you know. You can report the news that, you know, such and so, you know, so and so who was a member of this group, and, and you can mention that group because that group is not exactly a nice group, but it's it's the the, the implication, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was just gonna say the implication is that black people justify this, like that black people don't like that they support this, like that it's anti-black to criticize black people attacking Jews as if black people are on board with it. It's so disgustingly racist. Yeah, no, no, everything about it is so wrong. Look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too much longer. So if you want to let know, uh, let people know where they can get a hold of you, if you got any last words about media, any words of hope, maybe <laughs> go ahead. Um, right, and to let people know where they can buy your book. Sorry, I should have mentioned at the start. Yes, it's on Amazon right now. Um, it should be, if you don't shop at Amazon, it should be on Encounter Books' website. That's the publisher um, by the end of the week. Um, and it's called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And I hope you buy it and enjoy it and 
talk to me about it. Um, I, I'm open to the idea that I'm very wrong. And um, I, you know, I, 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 my views have been very much cultivated and, you know, by my day job, which is as an opinion editor, where I spend a lot of time elevating the voices of people of color, working class people, marginalized people. So when I see those same voices that I have, you know, published in their own voice, represented by the Twitterati, I know that they're, you know, not accurately representing them, and so that's sort of the 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 um, tension that created the impetus for the book. And um, you know, thank you so much for having me, and also your presence on Twitter. I have to say is um, really important. I think that you provide a real countervailing balance, a real humanity to the conversation, and a, you have a real um, I would say a moral heft to your persona that I rely on. And I know a lot of others do too. So thank you so much for all of that. And thank you for having me. I feel really honored well, to have been here. Well, thank you very much. I mean, my Twitter, I'd like to keep it to like, you know, you know, fart jokes if I could, but <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot for those nice words. And thank you for coming on. And thanks right. everyone for listening. I'll be back. <laughs>